Well, it's been a couple of weeks, so we need to catch up. Or, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you need to be caught up. Uh, we've been, all the summer, we've been taking lessons from the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And some of them are such massive parts of Genesis that they require a couple of weeks to study. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did part one of Jacob. And when we left him, Jacob had, had run from his older brother who had threatened to kill him when his father died because he had deceived him and taken away his birthright and his blessing. And so Esau says, when dad dies, I'm coming to get you. And Jacob says, okay, I'm getting out of Dodge. And uh, so he was sent by his father, Isaac, to go find a wife in a certain region. And he's on that journey and he has this divine encounter while he, he has this major dream. You know, if you've ever had dreams, you're like, makes no sense whatsoever. There's pizza and bicycles and all kind of craziness. You don't know what's going on. You wake up and like, what was that about? Maybe I should write it down. Maybe there's some kind of spiritual meaning in it. No, no, no. He had this clear dream where God speaks to him. He sees angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And he wakes up and he says, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. And so Jacob encounters God for the first time. His, the God of Abraham and Isaac becomes the God of Jacob in the middle of nowhere. And a lot has transpired in between that particular event and where we're going to pick up today. He's gone to find a wife. He's gone to his uncle Laban, right? He's served for seven years, he thought, to marry Rachel, who was the younger daughter. The deceiver gets deceived. So Jacob has lived on deceiving people. Laban deceives him. He ends up marrying the older daughter first. He spends a whole nother seven years. So for those of you that are like, courtship shouldn't be very long. Jacob spent 14 years to acquire two wives. <laughs> In that meantime, he goes through a similar experience to some of his other his father's father's father's. He couldn't have kids, and so there's all kind of craziness going on. He marries one of Rachel's servants. He marries one of Leah's servants. Because they did things weird back then. So he has gone off. When he leaves, he's by himself running for his life. He finds his uncle. He ends up with four wives. <laughs> I know, right? So... He marries them. He has lots of kids. He deceives Laban out of livestock. He tricks him. He gets lots and lots of livestock. Between his four wives at this point in the story, he has 11 kids. So for all you tired parents out there, you got nothing. You know what I mean? Four wives, 11 kids, lots of animals. <laughs> He's done okay. Interesting. He's certainly not alone anymore. Loneliness would not be the issue, right? So God, here's the thing though. What this means is that God has kept the promise he made to Jacob in the middle of nowhere. Because part of the whole vision dream thing, when he woke up, said God was in this. During the dream, God said, I will make you a great nation. He said, I will be with you and keep you safe and protect you until I return you to the promised land. He made that promise. And Jacob goes, well, if you keep that promise, you'll be my God. We'll be good, <laughs> you know. And by the time we reach this part of the story, he's got four wives, 11 kids, lots of livestock. We've got the beginning of making you a nation being fulfilled. 
He has great wealth. He's been blessed. Because back then the size of your flock was the size of your bank account. Both family and livestock. <laughs> In fact, if you go read the Old Testament, every time it says God says, I will bless you, a lot of times the context of that blessing is lots of kids. That the Old Testament understanding of blessing was a big family. So by God's standards, by Old Testament standards, Jacob is pretty wealthy. <laughs> right? So he is blessed by God. He has a huge family. And he is preparing to return to the promised land. So God is fulfilling our trajectory that he sent him on with the first vision, with the first divine encounter. That's kind of the beginning of the story with Jacob. And the story we're going to read today is kind of the resolution of that whole development of Jacob. Because, remember, his name literally means deceiver, right? It has this connotation to it that he's this trickster. He's this guy who deceived Esau out of a birthright, deceived Esau out of his, out of his uh, blessing, tricked his father into blessing him instead of his brother. He deceived Laban and got some livestock out of the deal. Like, he's got this pattern of working an angle. He's one of those kind of guys. There's always an angle to be worked out. Even with God, he's like, well, if you'll take care of me, then I'll, I'll worship you. Like, he's always turning that corner. So when God, he first encounters God, he's like, okay, God is real, but he's got this contingency plan with whether or not he's going to trust him or not. He goes and has this infinite amount of experience, picks up a huge family and lots of livestock, and now he's returning home, which returning home means he's still got to go reconcile with Esau, you know, the guy that he originally deceived. But God's been doing something in Jacob's life through all of this. And the story we read today is kind of the culmination of that transformation in Jacob. We're going to read that. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. The same night, remember he's preparing to meet Esau, so he has kind of sent, he's, he's making preparations to do that. That same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok River. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was out of, put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, I have seen God face to face. And yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel limping because of his hip. Therefore, on this day, the Isra to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip and the socket at his thigh muscle. I always love when the Old Testament writers put a little editorial commentary in there about tradition and why they don't eat that particular meat or whatever. And there it is right at the end of the story. So you got Jacob. He's preparing to return to meet his brother whom he deceived. Going back to the promised land, he's kind of leaning into the promise that God's going to protect him because <laughs> he's going back to where he came from where all the chaos happened. And we have a second 
divine encounter. If you're following Jacob's story, as we were talking about, it kind of starts with one and ends with one. There's all this stuff going on in between. And, of course, he has the encounter with Esau after this. But really, in between these two stories, in between these two encounters, God is transforming Jacob. He's making him into something he has not been. He's making him into something God predicted he would be. There's a prophecy when Jacob and Esau are born that the older will serve the younger, referring to Jacob and Esau. So God is not just like, yeah, Jacob's doing pretty good. I guess I'll bless him. This idea of turning Jacob to Israel has been happening since, the begin- since they were conceived. God's been behind this story the whole time. God's not like, how's Jacob doing? Oh, yeah, I better bless him. He, you know, he's had a plan for Jacob all along that he's not given up on. That's why he could make that promise to Jacob in the first place. It's like, I'm doing this with you on purpose. We are going somewhere with this. It's not an accident. So in 22 and 23, he's based, verse 22 and 23, he sends his family across the river. He sends all the livestock across the river. It's kind of weird. It's like going on your family trip. It's like, y'all get in the car. I'll meet you at McDonald's down the road. And like, you send them off. And you get a rental car to catch up or something. Like, he's pushing them across the river. And he's by himself. And maybe God was... Whether he knew it or not, God was prompting him so they could have that encounter, we don't know. But there's also, when you go read the encounter with Esau, he does this like, I know I'm going to meet him, but I'm going to send my strong men ahead. I'm going to send some cattle ahead. So if Esau is still mad, they'll make the brunt of that, and I'll come along later. There's a little bit of this like Jacob going, I'm covering my bases here. But he's going through this elaborate process of sending his family across the river, but there's no detail. It just says he sends everything across. And then in verse 24, it says, he wrestles with a man until daybreak. That's like the most understated story in the Bible. It's a wrestling match that lasts all night, and there's no detail. It's like, he wrestled with a man until daybreak. Who's the man? What happened in the wrestling match? (laughs) We don't know. (laughs) Can you imagine wrestling with somebody? This is pre-electricity days. So when the sun goes down until daybreak... You know, if it's daylight savings time, it'd be 8 o'clock to 8 o'clock. <laughs> 12 hours of a wrestling match, and we get a, st- a simple statement. You wrestle with somebody till daybreak. No detail. We don't know who the man is. There's all kinds of theories about who the man is. He's definitely not just a regular man, though. As you'll see as the story, the little bit of detail that we do get unfolds. He's not just like some guy that ran to him in the desert, like, let's wrestle. That's not how it worked. This guy has power. Now, for a wrestling match to go all night, it had to be pretty evenly matched. You know, the man didn't pin him in three seconds, and Jacob didn't pin him in three seconds. They're wrestling for hours. So in verse 24 and 25, let's read 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So, in other words... The man's not winning. Jacob's not winning. When he saw he didn't prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was dislocated. That's what it says. Put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, some translations say the man touched Jacob's hip. So the implication is this is not like he finally got a good move on Jacob. It's more like, okay, I'm a little tired of wrestling. Tap. (laughs) This is not a regular man. He's like, okay, we're wrestling. We're wrestling. Watch this. Ooh. 
Right? He touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. This is a divine being. Some theorize it's a pre-personification of Jesus. Most think it's an angel. It's certainly somebody who has the power to just touch you and dislocate your hip. Probably an angel. Probably a messenger of God sent to test and to work on Jacob and to be God's ambassador to Jacob. Maybe just God going, hey, let's have a wrestling match. Either way, it's a person who has the power to just go, this fight's almost over. Verse 25. Still good. Let's keep going. Then he's, verse 26. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. Okay, so this is the angel, the man, the stranger, the challenger says, let me go. So I kind of picture Jacob's got him in a headlock or something. Like they're laying in the dirt. He's like, you know, he's like, let me go. The sun's about to come up. (laughs) So Jacob has been overpowered, but the angel cannot get away from Jacob. He's got him pinned down. And he says, let me roll. Let me out of here. The sun's going to come up. This match needs to end. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, I've mentioned this. Jacob's whole story is, I was second born and I didn't want to be. In fact, you go read the birth account. He's born clutching on to Esau's heel. The implication being he was trying to pull him back in so he could get out first. And like, Jacob has been trying to be Esau since he was born. To be the firstborn, to be the one who is blessed, the one that Isaac would lay his blessing on, and he's cheated and stolen and deceived to gain it. And he's been through all of this stuff, and God has blessed him anyway, and given him a big family anyway, and given him lots of livestock anyway, and he's having a 12-hour WWF in the desert, and he's still looks at the man and says, I am not letting you go unless you bless me. So you want more? You want more? He still has no confidence in who he is. He still does not have enough blessing from God. He still wants more from this man he's wrestling with. He says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Still working the angle. Remember, he left the promised land with absolutely nothing all by himself. He's loaded now. And he is, there is something inside of him that says this is still not enough. Still aching in my heart to be blessed. Still wanting what you have not given me. So verse 27, he says, the man says to him, what is your name? place excuse me verse 27 he says so what is your name and he said Jacob and what's interesting about that is the last time he was asked by somebody what is your name he answered Esau the last time he was asked what is your name who are you The answer was, I'm Esau. He pretended to be his older brother to get the birthright, to get the blessing. When this angel pins him down in the desert and says, what is your name? He finally answers truthfully. He says, I'm Jacob. There's a moment, it's almost as if there's a moment in this wrestling match, in this 12-hour event, 
welcome to the main event. I mean, there's this thing where he says, you know what, I'm Jacob. It's almost as if there's this point in his heart where he goes, I can't keep up the charade anymore. I've tried, I've deceived, you've been good to me. I am who you say that I am. I'm Jacob. And one of the places in the Bible that I think God has a little bit of a sense of humor, the angel goes, cool, your name's no longer Jacob. <laughs> it's, it's like, I'm finally come to this point in my life where I'm like, I'm good with being Jacob, I'm good with being second born, whatever you're going to do, you're going to do, nope, you're Israel. <laughs> like five seconds later, you're Israel, buddy, you're not Jacob anymore. He renames him. He calls him, he calls him Israel. Now, you should know, if you've been to Sunday school ever in your entire life, the name Israel is kind of important. Right? It's the name of the nation and the people of God. Right? God's promise to Jacob in the first divine encounter was, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. You will have descendants like dust of the earth. And I will be with you. And I will keep you safe until I return you to the promised land. And then in the middle of this fight, he calls him Israel. In other words, this is the man through which the people of God will originate. Eleven kids, number twelve is on the way later. The twelve tribes of Israel are the twelve sons of the deceiver. Of the guy who's always working an angle, the guy who's wrestling in the desert. The, tw the twelve tribes of Israel came from the scumbag younger brother who deceived to get ahead. That's who God says, I am turning into my special people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you and it will be called Israel. And the reason for the name is because you have struggled with God and prevailed. You have struggled with God and continued to exist. <laughs> you are still here. In fact, when Jacob gets out of this encounter, he goes... I've been, I, I'm calling this place Peniel because I've wrestled with God and I'm still here. I'm still alive. I have come to God face to face and I'm still around. If you know the history of the people of Israel and the rest of the Old Testament, does that not describe their relationship with God? Hey, I know we're supposed to do this, but we're not going to do this. The judges period. They once again turned their hearts to idols and God sent judgment upon... Like The whole rest of Old Testament is Israel running this way and God calling them back. Wrestling with God and continuing is the nature of their history to come. They're just like their dad. <laughs> he has turned him into Israel. Not with the firstborn, not with the one everybody expects, the secondborn guy. When he wakes up the next morning, the man is gone and Jacob is gone. All that remains is Israel. The transformation is complete. He has made him into who he originally planned to make him to be. Remember, behind this whole story and going back through the other patriarchs, what has God been doing this whole time? Creating a nation. He promised Abraham, I will give you descendants, and made him wait till a hundred to have the first one. There's a theme running through these patriarchs, right? They can't have kids. They struggle. Even Jacob's mom was barren for a season before she had Jacob and Esau. Jacob and his wife, Rachel, couldn't have kids. 
Here comes the second and fourth, third and fourth wife trying to make that happen, trying to force the hand. There's a recurring theme. Abraham did the same thing. But behind all of that history and all of our human striving to do what we think God wants us to do or we want to do or try to figure out if it's what we want to do is what God wants to do, all of that that's happening, God has been working to create a people for himself the whole time. And at the end of all of that, that's exactly what he's done. He has created the nation of Israel in a wrestling match in the desert. In the middle of nowhere, he has created the people of God. And so Jacob's new identity is defined in the context of his relationship with God. We've called this series The Lessons from the Patriarchs. Like, how do, we, how do we interpret this? How do we take all of this? This is the rest of the story right there toward the end. 29. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Remember, Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Jacob still gets the blessing. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him and he as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Oh yeah, by the way, get that in a second. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. He dead-legged him. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So the rest of the story is the wrestling match. He, he says, Jacob turns around to the, the angel and says, well, what's your name? Jacob's still trying a little bit of a one-up in this scenario. The angel doesn't respond, doesn't give him that power over him, but blesses him anyway. Then Jacob leaves with a limp. So what are a couple of these lessons? And there's a couple of details in there I want to tie into this too. What are these lessons from Jacob's story, from divine encounter to divine encounter that we can take for ourselves? The first one is our identity comes from our relationship with God. Who we are is defined by how we relate to God. Jacob becomes Israel in the middle of the wrestling mat, wrestling with God. I want to be this. No, I want you to be this. Sound familiar? If you ever have conversations with God about who you are and who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do with your life and you're wrestling with that and you're struggling with that or you don't feel good enough or you don't feel worthy enough or you don't feel lovable, or you're lonely, or you're hurting, or you're broken. That, giving God that and wrestling through that with God is where you find your actual identity. Healing, worth, value, purpose is found in a relationship with God. Not in our own effort. Not in our own striving to be the next big thing at anything. It's found in the context of who we are and who God has called us to be. Remember, God chose Jacob, the deceiver, to be the birth of the nation, not the top dog, not the firstborn, not the captain of the football team, the schemer. Got chosen. And that is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. He takes fishermen who don't have education, who are not rich, who are not all that, and turns them into the original disciples. Time and time again. David, 
the least born of Jesse, not the first. All throughout Scripture, God takes the person we don't expect Him to work through and moves the whole world through them. Because it's not up to our effort and striving. It's up to what God wants to do through us. It's not about how awesome we are. It's about how powerful and on purpose God is through us. That's where we find our identity. In that moment where Jacob says, I'm Jacob, instead of Esau, it's as if he's come to the end of his aspirations. I'm done trying to be the firstborn. What are you going to do? And maybe that's what we need to do too. We need to have the conversation with God. like, God, I know I've tried to be this, but I'm this. Do what you're going to do with it. Take this guy in the direction you want to go. I give up trying to do it myself. I give up trying to accomplish everything myself. I give up trying to figure it out myself. And that's when God says, you're no longer this, you're this. See, it takes that moment of surrender. It takes that moment of giving up your own effort of stopping, striving to do and to accomplish and to be. It takes that moment of humility that says, I can't do this. I can't be what I think I'm supposed to be. I need you. And that's when God changes, in Jacob's case, literally changed his name. Changes who we are. Changes the nature of who we are. Jacob has changed from deceiver to one who struggles and sees God face to face. If we look at God and go, I'm done, what's he going to do with us? What's, how is he going to transform you? How does he need to transform you? Because that's really the second part of this, right? It's called, he's really, I say it's two parts, but they're really kind of the same. Because not only is our identity found in God, but our own strength comes from God, not us. The ability to do any of the things he tells us he's going to do with us still comes from him, not us. If you have that moment where you're like, I'm done, what are you going to do? It's still not us doing it anymore when it happens. It's God. Jacob walks away from the wrestling match victorious. <laughs> I put it in quotes because they, rest, they, they sparred all night. He ended up getting his blessing. He ended up getting a name change. He ended up getting God with him. He ended up getting God's protection and all those things. That he, so he won. But the scriptures tell us he walked the rest of his life with a limp because his hip was dislocated. He was marked by his encounter with God. He was not as strong as he was before the encounter started. He was transformed by it. But he will never forget that encounter with God because he's been changed, literally changed physically. He's not as powerful. He's not as able to be who he was before. And that's literal in the passage. He literally is limping, right? But think about that spiritually. Hey, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless you. But you're now doing that from a less powerful position than you were when you met me. It is a theme of Scripture for God to make the weak strong, to use the less and make them better. Because when they do that, when God does something with the weaker person, when God does something 
with the rebellious kid and the person who can't do what God wants him to do, it's even more powerful and even more obvious that it's God. If he does it with the one who can't do it, then we know God did it, not them. There's another way of saying it. It happened with the disciples. The disciples walked around with Jesus in person and still got stuff wrong for three years. It's like talking about failing a long-term class. You know what I mean? Like you meet with a professor, you meet with a professor, and you still get the answers wrong on the test. It's kind of what happened. This is Mark 10 real quick. This is, this is a New Testament example of what I'm talking about. Mark 10 verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. That sounds a little bit like Jacob, doesn't it? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus, give us a blank check. (laughs) And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? They said, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in, in your glory. So they're hanging out with Jesus and they've got, they've got political career aspirations. They're like, hey, let us make, make us number one and number two when you establish your kingdom. The second and third in command to you. We want to be right at the table with the king. That's where we want to be. We're asking for a position. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I will be baptized with? They replied, we are able. <laughs> Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? Jesus asked this warning question in response to your question. You know what you're asking? Do you have any idea when you say, can I sit at your right and left what you're really asking for? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And he's making allusion to the fact that he's about to be crucified, right? He's about to be sacrificed. He's about to be executed. They don't really kind of, they haven't clued in on that yet. He says, are you sure you know what you're signing up for? And they arrogantly look at Jesus and go, yeah, we got this. (laughs) We can do it. We're able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am being baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And there's a little bit of prophetic stuff going on in there. In other words, the Father is going to decide who's on the right and left. But then, the ten, when the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called to them and said, You know that among, you, among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples are kind of making a Jacob mistake here, right? They want position. They want to be blessed. They want authority in the new kingdom. And Jesus goes, I don't know what you're asking. I don't think you know what you're asking. Because I didn't come to establish the kind of kingdom you're thinking about. I came to be poured out. I came to serve, not to be served. I came to give my life for the world. And by the way, you're going to do the same thing. All but John are executed of the original 12. Well, Judas hung himself. The other 11, 10 of the 12, died at the hands of the Roman Empire, the government, whoever was persecuting the Christians. 
John was punished and banished and all those things, but he lived to a ripe old age. But he was the only one. But he spent time on the island of Patmos writing the whole book of Revelation, the whole thing. Like he was sent off and banished. They all suffered because of their relationship with God. They had to face the same thing. Jesus, he goes, you're going to face the same thing too. Because in my kingdom, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's the inverse. It's upside down. It's not the person who has power that God uses. It's the person who needs God that God uses. It's the person who can't do it himself that God uses as his instrument to accomplish his purpose. Jacob's the deceiver. Jacob's the one running for his life. Jacob's the one stealing from his uncle. Jacob's the one who's having to lie, cheat, and steal to function. And God goes, are you Jacob or are you Esau? And he says, I'm Jacob. Cool. Now you're Israel. Now we can go somewhere. When you're done striving, when you're done chasing, when you're done trying to be all that, that's when God can use you the most. When you come to the end of your, your own personal aspirations. And just ask God to use you. To make you who He wants, not who you want. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, help us to find and identify ourselves in our relationship with you. Help our hearts and minds to acknowledge the fact there is a God and we are not it. Help us to acknowledge that it is your plan and your will that guides our steps, not our own. Help us to be as honest as Jacob. Help us to come to the end of ourselves so that we may find power in you, so that we may find strength in weakness, so that we may find hope in who you are, not in who we are. In Christ's name, amen.